Welcome to Breakout Investors. Today, we are speaking with the management of InfoSystem, ticker INFU, specifically the company CEO, Rich Diorio. Joining me on today's call are Breakout Investors, Aaron Warwick and Florian Bushak. This call is being recorded on August 18th, 2021, and will be distributed via the Breakout Investor channel on YouTube and our podcasting networks. Look for Breakout Investor content wherever you subscribe to podcasts. We are on Apple, Spotify, Audible, and most other platforms. Supporting materials for today's discussion will be posted on the Breakout Investors Collaboration app, which is located at app.breakoutinvestors.com. The application and much of the research content is free. After registering or logging in, use the search bar at the top right of any page, type in the ticker, and the results will give you a link to the research post for this presentation and to other discussion and research relating to today's company. Those of you already on the Breakout Investor platform can share your questions for the company using the Discuss tab in Aaron's Breakout Room. So let's get started with me handing the call over to Aaron, who will speak briefly about his interests in InfoSystem and then turn the call over to management. Aaron? All right, thanks, Josh, and thank you, Rich and Barry, for joining us today. Uh, I've been following InfuSystem since December 2019 when I first learned about them at LD Micro. I've been following their progress, which has been significant uh, since that time, and uh, very interested in having them on after their latest earnings release. And, and as uh, most of us on this call, if not all of us on this call, know the stock uh, dropped after that. I thought it was a great buying opportunity. Certainly put my money where my mouth was, and uh, hoping that we can we can hear from uh, from the team here today uh, on what they're doing, and then we can ask some questions. And of course, uh, after that, we'll analyze in our in our chat rooms and so forth uh, to talk more about it. But with that, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Rich. And again, thank you for being here with us. We look forward to the presentation. Thanks, Aaron. Um, so what I can do is I'll go through the presentation. Uh, I won't I won't spend too much time on it. I want to save as much time as possible for Q and A. Um, so I'll just give you kind of a brief overview of what we do and a little bit of detail on on the strategy moving forward. So if we can sum up InfuSystem in kind of one sentence, it's it's really the sentence on the screen. It's it's allowing patients to get from their clinic or their hospital and get them home with their device to get treated in the comfort of their home, where it's proven that uh, efficacy is better, recovery time is shortened. Uh, lower risk of infection in the patient's home, and obviously patient satisfaction goes through the roof, uh, and ultimately cost of the healthcare system comes down as well. So some highlights on the company. Uh, market cap is just about $400 million, just a little bit over. Uh, last year, we did $97.4 million in revenue. Uh, this year, we expect to be somewhere between one hundred and seven million and $110 million. Overall, from a, from a highlight standpoint, we've been growing double digits now for a couple years, uh, we expect to do that this year, and, and the growth should really accelerate uh, in 2022, 23, and beyond as well. Uh, ultimately, we provide durable medical equipment and associated services, getting patients from the, from the hospital uh, into their home to get treated. The market's huge that we play in. Uh, it's over $10 billion in the U.S. and Canada uh, when you look at the home DME market. So the, the addressable markets are, are massive, and we'll get into some of those more specifically in a little bit. Uh, and we continue to gain market share really across all of our therapies. Uh, it, and it, what we do is we deliver that last mile. So taking the patient from the, the moment of discharge at the hospital to their home while they're there, we provide clinical support, logistics, uh, and, and everything else that goes along with that. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. And really what the strategy is to take what we've built over the last 34 years and, and really in the oncology market 
but take that platform along with the platform on the DME uh, services side of our business and build and add therapies and products and services to that existing infrastructure and really leverage that infrastructure and, and move forward. So just to give you a sense of, of the focus and, and the scale of the company, we have over 100,000 devices, mostly infusion pumps at this time. As I mentioned, we've been around, it'll be 35 years, I think maybe next week. Uh, we cut, we have seven service locations, uh, one in Toronto, uh, six here in the United States, spread out uh, across the U.S., and, and including all 50 states we service hospitals. We have three-quarters of the top 20 hospitals in the U.S., and, and maybe the most important number when you look at leveraging and, and our success in the future is that we cover over 95% of the patient lives in the United States and have them under contract through their insurance company. Uh, which is a massive number. I think it's over 750 health healthcare plans that we're in network with, and again covering over 95% of the of the U.S. population. Uh, huge infrastructure that's already been built that we can leverage. Historically, we've been in in infusion pumps, and we'll get into a little more of this in a minute. But uh, that's just the jumping off point. It really doesn't matter what device it is. If it's a device that the patient takes home, that our nurses can triage, that our biomed guys can repair and maintain, that our logistics team can get back and forth and that our revenue cycle team can build the insurance company for, it's a candidate for one of our platforms. And then a huge ROI, uh, scalable sales team, uh, no R&D. We don't manufacture any of the products. We're just truly a distributor. So it allows us to be nimble and flexible in the markets that we serve. So the two platforms, as I mentioned, DME services is about one third of the revenue. Uh, the integrated therapy services where we were kind of born in oncology, where that resides, that's about two thirds of our revenue, just to kind of give you a, a quick breakout. So to go into each platform really briefly, the DME platform is, is a little simpler to understand. It's, it's kind of classic distribution. So we sell, we rent, and we service devices for the hospital, for the clinic, for the private practice. Um, the device is in the middle of that service, and it really doesn't matter what the device is. Again, it's been infusion pumps historically, but it could be ventilators, it could be EKGs, defibrillators. The difference here is that we, we bill the, the clinic or the hospital, the customer directly and get reimbursed. Um, this platform is really going to grow in the biomedical services piece. And I'm sure Aaron has, has some questions here in a minute on that. But the, the, the piece of the business where we service customers' devices, uh, they send them to us. We do it on site at the hospital. Uh, we build the clinic after we're done. That part really has some explosive growth uh, potential here in the very near future over the next couple of years. On the integrated therapies platform, it's definitely unique. Uh, a little bit different from, from the DME. And the biggest difference here is how we get reimbursed. We don't necessarily build a clinic or hospital directly. We build a patient's insurance company. But as I mentioned, any device can fit in this model. Historically, it's been infusion pumps. Uh, we are now in pain management and continuous peripheral nerve block devices. Uh, we also now are in negative pressure and wound care. We recently launched uh, pneumatic compression devices to get into the lymphedema market. And the reason why it's kind of device agnostic is that, again, if our biomed team can repair it and maintain it, if our logistics team can ship it back and forth, if our clinical team can take care of that patient once they're in the home, and our revenue cycle team can bill an insurance company for it with a code, it's a, it's a potential device for this platform. And when you think through all the devices out there, not just the ones that we already have, uh, but any device that the patient goes home with and they get treated in their home is a potential candidate for this platform. That's what's exciting about it because the, the, the options are almost unlimited. Some of our competitive advantages I'll put our clinical team and biomed team against any in the world. Uh, I think we're the best at it, and, and I don't even think it's close. But really, probably the single biggest uh, advantage is those contracts. So as we add new therapies, whether it was lymphedema recently or, or negative pressure last year in wound care, 
We don't have to go out and reinvent the wheel and get a whole bunch of new contracts. We take the 750 we have, we get accredited, we get licensed, which doesn't take very long. And then we layer that new code for the new device into our existing contract and we're off and running. So it's very scalable, very easy to move forward. It's a huge moat around our business. Uh, I don't care what your resources are to go out and get those contracts. It can take years and years. It took us 34 to get to where we are. Some of them are exclusive. So even if you tried to get into the contract, you can't. Um, so it's a, it's a massive, massive advantage that I really don't think anyone, big or small, can compete against. So how are we going to grow in the strategy? So historically on the ITS side, th these are our current therapies. So oncology, well-established. Uh, we have two-thirds of three-quarters three quarters of the market. Uh, it'll grow, you know, mid-single digits, but it, it's it's really going to throw off a lot of cash to help us invest in, in our future growth opportunities and, and therapies. Pain management, so the treatment of, of uh, post-surgical pain and elective surgeries. Uh, that's been out for a few years now. It's just starting to gain traction. We expect it to double its revenue this year, double again next year, uh, which will put it $10 plus million in, in annual revenue, and then it'll continue to grow from there. Uh, negative pressure wound therapy, that was that came from our relationship and our partnership with Cardinal last February, right before, right before COVID is when we launched it. Uh, it's just starting to gain traction now. There's a huge opportunity in the marketplace. We went from three sales reps to 17 in the last few months, uh, and we're really going to go take advantage and um, – and grow that business really starting in the fourth quarter this year, we'll start to see it. And then obviously in a 22 and 23 and beyond, it should really accelerate. And then lymphedema is our newest therapy. Uh, we only announced it last month. Uh, we're still going through the training process and launching the program, but you know, really no, no revenue this year. We'll see some in 2022, but 23 is where it's kind of staged. Uh, where revenue will start to show up and it should follow right in between pain and negative pressure. Again, the model very, very scalable. Uh, in some cases, we don't have to add many sales reps. We need some back-end support on the revenue cycle and clinical side a little bit. Uh, but again, we're not building buildings. We're not tooling up. We're not manufacturing anything. Uh, so there's a little bit of a cost to get into the market, but, but, but not a heck of a lot as we move forward. And then Barry, uh, if you want to take it and, and go through the financials. Yep, just, I'll just uh, spend a little time on the first half results for uh, this year. You can see that our revenue for the first half of 2021 was $49.3 That's a 3.7% increase over the prior year. Uh, that increase uh, occurred despite a pretty significant bump in, from related to COVID last year in the second quarter, where uh, strong demand for infusion pumps and a, a special one-time sale of uh, out of our of our historical fleet um, gave us about a $2 million uh, benefit last year. So we didn't see that as much this year. So that without that, it would have been about 8.1% growth. Uh, the drivers for that were mainly the new therapies getting started, the pain management and the negative pressure wound therapy, and a little bit of revenue from a couple acquisitions that we did um, in the first and second quarter of this year. Turning to the net income, a um, couple things it went down when you look at the first half of this year compared to last year. There's some non-cash items in there. For example, stock comp is up by $2.4 million, mainly because the stock price was increased significantly over the prior year. A little bit of extra depreciation on devices we bought last year, and then we had a tax benefit that offset those a small amount by 600000 Turning to the adjusted EBITDA, um, adjusted EBITDA was slightly lower this, this year than it was last year. Uh, the margin was a bit lower as well, but that's mainly because um, the, the COVID bump was very profitable. It, was, it had a lot of rentals, which is, which is a very high margin for us, and the one-time sale didn't have really any cost to it, no cash cost at least. Uh, so that was about almost $2 million that benefited on the EBITDA line. Um, 
there also was an investment this year in the negative pressure and pain uh, management sales team members were growing that those businesses very rapidly and so we had about four hundred thousand dollars in, in additional cost uh, related to, to that early investment for those therapies and then finally in the operating cash flow significant increase over last year last year we were building working capital uh, we had we had higher inventories and uh, and receivables partly because of covid partly because of the the one-time sales that we had last year as well so we're very happy about being able to generate significant amounts of cash uh, now this year versus last year. Uh, turning to the to the full year guidance, we we are maintaining our 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 revenue guidance, but we think we'll be in the low end of our 107 million to 110 million dollar range. Uh, on our adjusted EBITDA, we brought that down from a 27% margin to 25%, mainly because we're investing in in salespeople for those new therapies. That's about a two million dollar investment we see for this year. And then the, just the, the mix is um, a little bit lower. Rental uh, revenues that decreased as we see COVID um, uh, diminishing, uh, again, are very, very high margins for us. So that's that in the financials. Thanks, Barry. So uh, real quick, executive team, obviously Barry and myself are on the call. Uh, re really, this slide is up here to show you that uh, there's years and years of healthcare experience in here supplemented by uh, expertise that we didn't have in the past. Uh, this team has been very deliberately rebuilt over the last three years, and it's been really built for what we have coming in the future. So the future growth, uh, the needs of the business, uh, and the future of uh, health of the of the company as we move forward. And with that, Aaron, I'll uh, turn it back over to you for some Q&A. Okay, great. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Um, I guess the first thing that I want to want to talk about and just make sure that we're all on the same page, I asked it on the call uh, and, and I guess the only reason I'm asking it now is probably because of the reaction after the call and the sell-off. But I mean, if I understand you guys correctly, what you're saying is that you sort of pivoted here in the middle of 2021, very slightly in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but you sort of, it, it sort of was a minor slowdown for revenue and a minor hit to the EBITDA margins. But the reason you did it is your expectation is you have at least three businesses or new areas of focus that over the next three to five years could become the same size as your current ITS business in, in oncology or bigger. It, am I missing anything from that? It, no, I think that's a pretty, pretty accurate summary. I mean, um, you know, the revenue hit uh, versus what we expected coming into the year and where we expect to come out of the year it, it really falls onto the COVID uh, piece, you know, the lower rentals and sales on the DME side. And it's it's pretty much that simple. Uh, there was a much steeper decline, a lot quicker than we thought there would be. I guess the good news is that COVID kind of went away, at least temporarily, a lot faster than people had even probably hoped for. Uh, so that's a good sign. But unfortunately, the pumps came back uh, at the same rate. So that's really what we what we look at when we look at the top line. On the bottom line, it was a very deliberate move. Um you know, we went out and hired almost 20 sales reps between negative pressure and pain management, you know, probably the two fastest growing pieces of our business, at least today. It's an investment of a couple million dollars a year that we think is going to return tens of millions every year after. And it's it's something we talked about internally. We, we knew we were going to uh, take a hit on the bottom line for it. But I think it's an investment that we would all make 10 times out of 10 and we would do it over and over again. Um, you know, it's, it's a small investment in the sales team, really just to take advantage of market opportunities. That's why we're doing it. And, and so if I understand this investment correctly, you're talking about investing pr primarily not in 
in products, but in people. And um, you're talking about investing in people, it seems like not for some opportunity that may become available later on down the, the line, but an opportunity that's like right at your doorstep. Is that an accurate way to depict that as well? Yes, absolutely. So on the pain side, uh, we had four of arguably the best pain management reps in the market uh, come to us and and people that you just can't turn away. They're that good. Right. So we have a, a program now that has really kind of got its feet under them. It's starting to grow rapidly. Again, we expected it to double this year, double again next year, even without those four individuals. Right. We, we had those four in there and, and they all just started like in the matter of the last few weeks and months. Uh, they're going to accelerate they, that. Why growth. did they come to you? Can you can you say? Uh, I think I think our pain program is finally getting to the point where people are taking notice and, and the competitors are starting to notice. Uh, and it's like any business. If you're if you're one of the best reps, you want to be with the best program. Right. right. You want to you want to be able to get into customers, talk about something new, make a lot of money. Uh, so it's starting to open some eyes in the marketplace, which is a really good thing. And to be able to, to hire these individuals, it, it's a no brainer. Like they're just they're that good. You have to bring them on board. On the on the negative pressure side, it was it was similar but a little bit different in that people came to us because an opportunity presented itself in the market. The biggest player in wound care or in negative pressure decided to to kind of pull back their team quite a bit. There were a lot of individuals out there to go hire. Uh, we didn't really say we were going to hire two people or 200. We just went out and found the best people we could find that we thought were the best fit for our organization. It turns out today we're sitting on I think it's 14 or 15 new reps. Uh, and that's what we're comfortable with today. It doesn't mean it won't go up as, as more and more people become available. But today, that's where we are. So you combine that with a, a now a market that's really disrupted by the biggest player in it. Uh, it. It's something we want to go out and get the best reps we can, get as many feet on the street and take advantage of that opportunity as fast as possible. And these these opportunities don't present themselves very often, kind of like it did for us with uh, in 2018 in the oncology market. The opportunity presents itself. You have to act on that. If you wait, the window closes and it goes by, it passes you by. Uh, and that's really why we look at pain and negative pressure and think there, there's no hesitate. There was no hesitation in the in the decisions we made, and we 100% would do it over and over again. It's just one of those things. You have to hire the people first, and you take a little bit of a hit on the bottom line until the revenue shows up. Uh, but the revenue will be here in the next six to nine months, and we'll start to see it. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is how long it, from the time do you hire a salesperson or even even from let's let's just even say from the time that that salesperson makes a sale, mm-hmm. how long does it take to actually be recognized as revenue? Because I imagine there can be quite a delay there even. Yeah, so on the you know, on the integrated therapy side, for sure, it can take a while. Right. So you can hire a rep today. You have to put them through the basic training of the company. Right. HR, IT, all the simple stuff. Right. They finally get out in the field. They start to close accounts. From the day you close an account in, in, on the ITS platform, it can take anywhere. The quickest possible time frame you'll ever see revenue is three months. But realistically, it's more like six to 12. Uh, six to nine is probably the, right in the middle of the curve. And that's just you have to you have to get the customer trained on the device. You have to teach them the paperwork. They have to start putting patients on. They have to submit the paperwork. We have to then put it through our revenue cycle process and collect the money. And that's a good six to nine months. So if you look at most of these reps being hired in April, May, June, that's why we start to see some of it come in in the fourth quarter, kind of the back end of the fourth quarter this year, uh, which will help our number. Uh, but obviously into next year is when we start to see it really starting to pick up and, and, hit, some, and hit its stride into 2022. Now, it seems like some of the revenue you, you talked about um so i i went back and and 
did a deeper dive with Florian uh, last night, and it looks like so you probably would it had it not been for the equipment being returned quicker, and then you guys making this pivot into biomedical services, which is what I want to get into next. You probably would actually have raised your guidance. So I think that answers that. But my question is then related to that. You said there was a two or three million dollar decrease in your expected revenue on DME because you're moving some of that equipment into this biomedical services. So could you talk a little bit about that transition, how long that'll take, what kind of revenue you're expecting to see uh, there, you know, next year and beyond? Yeah. So biomedical services could be one of the fastest growers, if not the fastest grower in the next year or two. Um, it's something we didn't talk a lot about. Uh, we did a couple million dollars a year in it. And, and really what it is is servicing customers' devices, right? Devices we don't own. We service for the customer. We send them a bill and we send the device back. The two acquisitions we made earlier in the year with Philomed and then OB Healthcare really put us in a position that we're in today. And what they did is Philomed added additional devices. So beyond infusion pumps, we're able to repair more devices. And OB Health gave us the opportunity and ability and skill set to repair them on site at the hospital. So we we historically brought pumps into our depots. We repaired them. We sent them back. When you're a hospital that has three or 400 broken pumps, you don't want to box those up and send them in, right? You want a guy to show up, go into your basement in the hallway, fix 400 pumps and leave a few days later and, and get a bill for it. And, and these two acquisitions gave us that capability. So putting that in the bag of the DME sales guys, even already we're starting to see that show up from, from a revenue standpoint, from customers getting in the queue, ready, to, ready for uh, repairs to be done. Uh, there's some huge opportunities out there. And we really, really think that this this biomed services piece could be as big as oncology someday. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be in 2022 or 23, right. but right. five, seven years from now, it could be as big as our biggest, the biggest piece of our business is today. Not a lot of overhead. Uh, Barry loves it because it's pretty capital light. We don't have to go out and buy a bunch of pumps. Uh, we buy some workbenches, some tools. We obviously have to hire a lot of techs to do it. Um, but that's really it. It's mostly human capital. Uh, and we hire as we need the people and, and bring them in, into our uh, buildings. And uh, what about the lymphedema side? Uh, that's the other thing I wanted to cover because that would be then we've hit all of the new areas. What What's the expectation there in terms of uh, getting that ramped up and so forth? It seems to be maybe the, you know, the of your new therapies, it's the uh, most recent and, and progress uh, the least amount so far. Yeah, so we, we formally announced it, uh, I guess it was last month in, in, in July. Uh, we really don't expect it to contribute anything this year, which is typical of an, a new ITS therapy. Uh, it'll have some contribution next year, but it's really 23 and beyond where we, we expect to see significant revenue. Uh, that therapy is really nice for a couple things, a couple reasons. On the acute care side for lymphedema, we already have our negative pressure now almost 20, well, almost 20 reps over there, um, selling to case managers and talking about wound care. In a lot of cases, it's the same case manager that you can talk to them about lymphedema. So we already have feet on the street. We already have relationships there that we can leverage. Even nicer is this is one of the few therapies that we could have dreamed of that would be fit right into the oncology market. So about 20% of all lymphedema cases come out of oncology. Uh, we have almost 2,300 customers. We have 25 uh, sales reps. We've been in the market for 34 years. We know every player in the market. And we can go after 20% of a huge addressable market that's over a billion dollars easily uh, right in our wheelhouse. So the reps don't have to go to different buildings. They don't have to call in different customers. It's people we've known for years. Uh, our average tenured rep in oncology, I think, is pushing 10 years. might be a little bit higher now. So tremendous relationships. We can just walk in the door. 
And that's really what we liked about that therapy. Again, even if we sign up customers today, it's next year before we see revenue. But the reality reality is by the t- time you train the guys, they get their feet under them, they get in the market, they talk about it. It's, it's a year or so before you start to see anything. Um, so lymphedema is a phenomenal prospect. I think it's the biggest addressable market we're in. Yeah, I was going to say, am I understanding it correctly then? I mean, if you're talking about a $1.5 billion market and you guys can get 10 to 20% of that, then, I mean, you're talking double, triple the size of your entire revenue right now by the time you get there, which I know will take years. Obviously, yeah. we're not talking about 22 or even 23, but eventually. Yeah, and, and that's true of lymphedema. It's true of biomedical services. It's true of pain management and wound care. And if we hit on all four, Mm-hmm. You know, we're four times as big as we are today, whenever that time frame is. Right. Um, you think pain yeah, that, that can be that saying. big? I thought pain management was going to be a little smaller. but pain, pain can be as big, you know, if we really hit it, you know, over time, it could be as big as oncology. It, may, it might be pushing the, the max of it, uh, but it could get up around there. Biomedical services could dwarf the whole business. Uh, lymphedema is probably at the same pace, and, and wound care is, is not that far behind. Uh, and I actually, I, I really believe that, there's no reason why all four of those won't hit, but obviously to various degrees over time. Right. But it, I don't think any of them is, is going to fail or we're going to say, hey, you know, we're going to pack up our stuff and leave the market because we just can't do it. It's exactly what we do today in oncology. It's not much different. Uh, and we have the team that's built for it. We're hiring the new members we need today. Uh, there's really no hesitation on any one of those four opportunities that, that tells me we're not going to hit all of them pretty big and execute on all of them. So last one for me before I turn it over to Florian and then also start um, asking questions that people have submitted that that weren't identical to my own. Um, you know, what 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 do you see as the risks? Um, I guess to me, you know, you're talking about potentially, you know, being four times the size that you are right now. Um, what are some of the, you know, for lack of a better word, I guess, integration risks as you bring on these new teams and new people, people from different and larger organizations, perhaps, but when they joined here, um, just what, what are you, you know, what are your concerns about that or, and what are you doing to address them? Yeah. So, so to me, the biggest risk is, is the execution on bringing in the right people and you touched on it. So we got to make sure they're the right culture fit, that they believe what this company believes and what we were based on. And, and first and foremost, and there's a reason why the very first slide has a picture of one of our patients on it. Our patient is the driver for all of our decisions, and we have to keep that close to us no matter how big and how fast we grow. And because we don't want to sacrifice quality, we, we can't allow safety to be an issue with a patient. We can't allow customer service to drop. That's what's creating some of our opportunities in the market, right? Some of our competitors are allowing that to happen. Uh, we just can't, can't allow that. So if we get the right team in, we train them the right way, and we keep kind of the, the basic foundation of who we are as an organization – and, and a lot of that falls on our executive team. So Barry, myself, Carrie, and the rest of the team, we are very conscious of that. We're not going to hire just to hire. Uh, we're going to control it, make sure it's done right. But from an execution of the actual therapies and, and billing the paperwork and getting new accounts and repairing devices, I don't, I don't see where we could have a misstep as long as we get the right team in place. Okay. Florian, do you have some questions you want to ask? Uh, yeah, I do have a few. So I want to, I guess I want to start again. Um, I think mostly the reason the stock sold off so hard after the um, after the recent results is more or less guidance. So on the Q1 call, you strongly indicated that you would probably raise guidance. Um, 
So I just want to to understand this myself and also let the audience sort of understand that um, at that point, you basically already knew that you would take this hit from COVID, right? From the pumps coming back. Uh, so we didn't necessarily know the extent of it. Um, so Aaron kind of touched on it earlier and that if if that hadn't happened, if the, if the return of those devices hadn't happened, we'd be likely raising our guidance, right? That's the two or three million dollar delta. Um, I think it, it takes a little while for the numbers to flush through and the pumps to really show up, which is our biggest in- indicator that pumps are coming back. They show up at our door. Uh, that takes a little while to happen. And I think when we talked to everybody, uh, I want to say the date was like May 6th. It was the first or second week of May that we talked to everybody. Uh, we didn't really even have April numbers yet. It just takes a while for everything to flush through the system. Uh, so at that moment, we believed things were still holding fairly well. You know, we knew some some pumps were coming back. Uh, we knew we had made a couple small acquisitions, not with a ton of revenue that came with them, but a couple small ones. Uh, we knew there was an opportunity in wound care. We hadn't really hired everybody yet or even identified the people at that point. Um, so all points pointed us in that direction of raising the guidance. Uh, but Florian, I agree. I mean, I think that's why we took the hit, right? People were expecting us to beat and raise. Uh, we had some changes in the market. We made some very conscious decisions on the on the people side uh, that, that that changed that scenario. But um, you know, it's a, it's a fair question. It's just at that in that window of time, we didn't have the visibility we needed. Yeah, definitely makes sense. And I mean, it's not your fault, right? I mean, these things happen. So uh, at some point, it just comes out. And um, I guess the the other thing um, that lowered your guidance for this year basically is the cross-selling program, about two to three million. But if I understood correctly, this basically you forego low margin revenue this year to go after higher margin revenue sort of maybe maybe next year or in in the near future so it's actually it's actually a positive for anybody that is interested in 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 being invested for a little bit for the longer term right yeah and and aaron we probably had this discussion before we don't we don't run this company quarter to quarter right i think you, you tend to make some bad decisions if you do that uh, and, and case in point is the hiring of all the wound care reps, right? It would have been the easy move to not hire them and keep our bottom line guidance where it was. The tougher decision is to do what's right for the long-term health of the business. And that was a very conscious decision. Like I mentioned, we'd make it a hundred times again. Um, and, and we will see that. So Florin, you're right on the, on the cross-selling. So what that is, is we take our oncology guys, we have 2,200, 2,300 accounts that they're already calling on, uh, we went in this year thinking that we could sell them, sell into those markets some disposable products that tie to infusion. So think about access needles and other things that the clinic uses for, for their infusions. Uh, it's not it's not super high margin at all, uh, but it's pretty high turn. So it's worth doing if we're there. What we've what we've pivoted a little bit in in the last few months is with the biomedical services opportunity, whether it's in a cancer center that's a standalone private practice or in a cancer center in a major hospital institution that we have as a customer. If our rep is already there. We have finite resources, so we can either have them try to sell lower margin products uh, against some big competitors or have them walk down to the basement to the biomed department and look at 200 pumps sitting on the wall that need to be fixed on the shelves and ask if we can repair them. So that's the pivot that we've made. Uh, It's not that disposables and that cross-selling has gone away. It's just gone it's gone further down in the bag for the sales reps from a priority standpoint. So it'll be higher margin. Uh, We think it will contribute a little bit of revenue uh, this year. But certainly, long term, it has it has massive potential for us. Hey, can I just add for a minute, Florian? Uh, yes, yeah, sure. 
got a question from someone, and I think I know the answer, and but it's good, I think, for others to hear, and I want to make sure that I... So um, can you explain why, you know, with Delta rising now, COVID cases rising, why those pumps that went out earlier are not, not going back out now? Uh, it's still relatively early uh, on the Delta side. Uh, you know, as you hear more and more anecdotal stuff about ICUs filling up, uh, which is just is, is so unfortunate. It's crazy. But uh, there's certainly a potential that some of those devices go back out. And, and there's kind of a couple of reasons. Well, three reasons why they could go back out. Delta would be the quickest way that they go back out the door. Uh, if Delta kind of subsides and, and COVID kind of tamps down a little bit, what we'll probably see is the flu season come back. We didn't really have one last year because of COVID and mask wearing and social distancing and everything else. Uh, so the flu season is a big season for our pump rental program in the winter months. Uh, and the third is we're just going to win some market share over time. So it's not that those pumps aren't going anywhere. It's just that we've kind of reset the baseline. And COVID certainly has the potential with Delta or any variant after that to kind of bring it back up. But it, we didn't want to set that into our into our new guidance. We wanted to kind of set the floor with potential to go up and beyond. And but wasn't there I mean you know, when we had talked before, it sounded like this is last year that there was one company that particularly, you know, kind of kind of needed you in that respect to a high degree. And perhaps now they're a little bit better positioned um, now that we have better idea of how to treat COVID and things like that. Is that a fair representation of? Uh, so so there was one big manufacturer. Uh, it was for enteral pumps, so feeding pumps. Uh, it coincided with the use of ventilators. So every time someone's intubated on a ventilator, uh, they can no longer take medicine or food by mouth, right? So yeah. it has to be infused. Uh, a lot of big manufacturers are very good at selling devices. What they don't have is a rental program. They don't know what to do with a device when it comes back, right? Because now it's used, right. it's dirty. What do they do? Um, so we had somebody lean on us uh, for, I don't know, a couple thousand pumps or so, uh, mostly in the Northeast last year. I don't think that company's any better positioned or positioned any differently than they were then. Uh, okay. So if that happens again, uh, we'll see how that works. But there's unknowns with Delta, right? A lot of people and, and hospitalizations are up now, but are people getting intubated or are they just sick but not as sick? How long are they going to be on a ventilator? So there's a lot of unknowns we just couldn't characterize. Uh, COVID is so dynamic. Uh, I mean, how many ups and downs have there been in the last 12 months, right, for everybody in healthcare? So we, we kind of wanted to take that out of the equation and say, okay, if we move COVID aside, what does our guidance look like? And we believe that ultimately, if, if it was to come back, we probably have upside in the numbers. Not something we really want to happen from a society standpoint. Right. Uh, but if it happens, there's some probably some revenue to be had from it. Thank you. So in terms of the new salespeople, you just got a lot of very experienced salespeople. If I understood correctly, um, are they already fully engaged? Are they in an onboarding process, uh, trained right now, or what's the status there? Uh, the status is all the above. So depending on when we hired them and when they came on board, uh, the the majority of the wound care reps came in in Q2, uh, fairly early in Q2. Uh, the pain reps are newer. I think our last pain rep just came on board last week. Uh, so they're all at various stages of uh, deployment in the field. And that, that dictates a lot on when we see the revenue, right? If you started in May versus starting in August, there's a huge window there that the guy in May now has opportunity to sell. Um, so they're, they're in various stages, but the vast majority of them are trained uh, kind of from the internal side. 
Uh, and now they're out in customers and we're starting, we're already starting to see some customers come on board and, and uh, see some of the benefit of those reps being on board. And with negative pressure wound therapy, you talked about 600 million of the market about, and the goal was to get five to 10%. Are you maintaining that with the new Salesforce or is there some upside? Uh, you know, there's probably upside there, but I think I think what we're looking at is originally that five or ten percent was going to be a solid three to five years, probably more like five years to get there, especially when we only had three reps coming into this year. I think with the number we have now and the experience they have and the relationships they have and the opportunity in the market, I'm not necessarily looking at upside as much as I'm looking at the five to ten percent being pulled forward to the earlier part of that time frame. So maybe it's three years or three and a half years instead of the full five. And again, we could be off. It could be four, right? But my expectation is that gets pulled forward more than it does give us more upside from the opportunity standpoint. Okay, very nice. Um, and then um, is there anything news on the Medicare CMS front? Can you comment a little bit on what is happening there and how it affects you? Uh, not a lot of effect. Uh, you know, CMS decided not to pay us five years ago in oncology, so it's kind of out of the out of the realm of any issues. Uh, on the wound care side, there was competitive bidding that went through last year, uh, or I, I should say was was going to happen last year. Uh, CMS didn't get the cuts that they were looking for in the savings, uh, so they tabled it. Usually when they do that, it's a couple of years before they bring it back, and then from there it's another year, year and a half before anything happens. So, you know, we're probably three plus years out from any real CMS concerns. Does that does that create uh, though uh, perhaps a barrier to entry for for other companies that are already in the marketplace? Uh, yes and no. I mean, we went through this in oncology years ago before CMS cut us to zero. Basically, in 2016, we went through competitive bidding a few years prior. Uh, you know, they award the bid, and there's there's different regions, and there's multiple regions. Some people get awarded all of them. Some only get certain parts of it. Uh, there's ways you can work within those constraints that even if you don't win the bid, you can basically outsource it through a company that did. So you can always find a way through if you needed to, uh, right. and which is part of why we weren't overly concerned. You know, if if uh, the big player in the market won all the regions last year, we still had a path to get our reimbursement, uh, even if we as Infuse System weren't, weren't uh, awarded the bid or Cardinal. Uh, so there, there's ways through it. It's not the easiest thing in the world, but we went through it. We were on the other side of the, the equation in oncology. We we won all the awards uh, across the country. We had other vendors coming to us and asking if they we could, you know it's it's a way to use different license numbers and different ways to bill. It's all legal. It's just a it's a way through the process. Uh, we all take the reimbursement cut. That's kind of the one common denominator. If it's a 10 percent cut, everybody gets it no matter what. Um, as far as who wins and who doesn't, doesn't have a big impact on on being able to play in that market. And was there a, a Medicare expansion recently related to home health care? Does that impact you guys at all? Uh, it does. So Medicare is covering a lot more things in the home, uh, still not infusion pumps. They still believe that it's part of the, the doctor's process and in, in, uh, in dispensing of the drug and everything else. But it does open up opportunities in, in a couple of ways. Home infusion companies are a big customer of ours, kind of across the board, especially on the DME side. So the more they can do in the home with infusion pumps or devices, the more we can, in theory, rent or sell to them. Uh, there's also some opportunities out there that there's some new drugs that are being given in the home uh, that we may be able to partner with hospitals on. But that's really, really early stage stuff. And we don't know if Medicare is going to flip those decisions. 
I don't think they will. I think Medicare, like everybody else, understands the need to get patients out of hospitals and into their home for treatment. So hopefully those those policies stay in place. We also had uh, a guy in our network who found um, a very recent article that uh, mentions uh, uh, an act in, in Congress um, called the Preserving Patient Access to Home Infusion Act, introduced by uh, senators, one being a Democrat, Mark Warner, and the other Republican, Tim Scott. Uh, are you familiar with that at all and have any idea how that could, could impact things going forward? Uh, so I'm not I'm not familiar with that specific act, um, but there there's actually a couple that are in a couple that have gone through, and, and a lot of it is what you would you would asked about a minute ago, just okay. just just getting more and more coverage in the patient home. So right. so CMS is pretty clear. Like historically, CMS doesn't cover antibiotics at home. So if you're a Medicare oh, patient, yeah, you either have to take oral meds or you have to stay in the hospital, or go back and forth every day. Whereas private payers have been paying for antibiotics in the home forever because they know that. If you have an infection, you don't want to be in a hospital. It's the last place you want to be, right? right? right. Uh, you want to be at home and recovering. So CMS has done some – yeah, exactly. They've done some weird things over the years. Um, so, yeah, the National Home Infusion Association is, is a great partner of ours, and they're always looking for ways to get patients home and get treated at home. So it doesn't surprise me that there's an act in there to do that. Okay. Uh, so compared to a few years ago, you were more – I would say capex intensive in the sense of buying pumps, buying equipment, things like that. Whereas now you are at a position where you are more investing, as I would call it, through the income statement. Basically, investing in people, investing in Salesforce. Can you just talk about talk a little bit about, about your your thoughts on on the differences there and how it affects the business? Yeah, so so Barry can get into the specifics in a minute. I think what you're seeing now is you, you're 100% right. The the investment is in the human capital right now, and I think that that's because we're preparing for that growth. Now, once that growth starts to hit, we will need devices, especially in lymphedema, or not necessarily lymphedema, but on the wound care side, pain side, and even as oncology continues to grow slowly. So when we add new patients, we just need new devices, right? It's just a, it's a pretty simple equation. Uh, the biomedical services side is totally different because we're, we're, there's no capex really at all, other than the, the bench and the tools. Um, so we, as that outpaces other growth, you might see us kind of lighten up on the capex spend a little bit. But as the growth catches up to the human investment on the ITS side, you will see some capital being spent. We're, we're just going to need the devices for, you know, if we go from, you know, zero to a thousand patients in wound care, we're going to need a thousand devices to treat those patients, right? And that's where you'll see the spend come up. So Barry, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. One thing I really add to that, Rich, is that. Um, Certainly, the new therapies aren't any more capital intensive than, say, oncology has been. Um, we love rentals, but we have to buy devices for rentals, too. But, but, but our mix of non-capital intensive um, uh, revenue is definitely getting is improving. Like you said, the biomedical services is really just people. There's no devices to buy. And even the lymphedema, we're selling the device. We're not buying a piece of a capital equipment and renting it. So that'll help us as well. So cash flow will be better and better because of that. So one thing that hasn't nice. been discussed much um, recently because of all these new developments, but I want to also uh, make sure I stay updated on that is what what are what's the expectation in oncology in ITS? Is that going to continue to grow, or is that kind of leveling off? Um, so oncology is going to be a mid single digit grower. Uh, there'll be years when it grows three or four percent. There'll be years it grows six or seven. 
Uh, but it'll be in that in that realm, uh, you know, for years to come. You know, the days are growing 20 percent because the opportunity right. to present itself is, is probably past us. Uh, there's some big still some a couple big customers out there that can move the needle up into that six or seven range. Uh, but it's a it's a four or five percent grower probably for years. Uh, so it can, it'll continue to contribute uh, just at a lower pace or slower pace. But it'll continue to throw off a ton of cash to help us invest in the other businesses. And how do you think generally about, at the moment, capital allocation? You have basically, you have pretty ample liquidity, I would say. You have access to lines of credit, and so you have basically investing in new people, investing in uh, capital expenditures. Um, then you have also the buyback program. Um, how do you think about where the priorities are? Barry, you can take that. Sure. Uh, so, uh, our definitely our, our viewing in terms of priorities. We're we're a growth business, growing, um, you know, spending money and, and making those investments is the most important thing. Um, you know, we have to buy devices. We have to. We may do more acquisitions like we did this year, by probably small though. Um, I think it's all above strategy with uh, with sort of that returning capital investors being the smallest part of it. But when we're growing at 20 plus percent, which we think we will in some years. We're probably going to be consumer capital when we're doing this year. We'll probably have some excess cash at the end of there, even though we did a couple small acquisitions. So it's, it's that prioritization that, that uh, I think is pretty obvious. Yeah, and I, and I think the buyback, you guys saw the announcement last month. I think that that's, as Barry stated when we were doing it, it's just it's just getting a tool in the toolbox. So if and when we need it, it's there and it's ready to go. The previous one had expired. Uh, we just wanted the ability, if if we wanted to and had had access to the cash and, and didn't have another priority at that moment, uh, to go act quickly and buy back some stock if the opportunity presented itself. But it's it's absolutely opportunistic on that side. And in terms of <clears throat> sorry, in terms of leverage, do you have any target in mind? I mean, your business model is relatively predictable, I'd say. So do you have any target for leverage or any? Any anything you you wouldn't cross or you would be careful about? I'll take that one, Rich. I, I think that we like bank debt. It's very inexpensive. That's all we have in our for, portfolio. We have more liquidity than we actually have debt. Forty-one million in liquidity through the the our, our um, revolving credit facility and only thirty-one million in actual debt outstanding. Um, so so if, if, when we have extra cash, we're going to pay down that revolver just to just to put it to work. Um, but I think that the company, if we see an opportunities to do maybe a larger acquisition or, or even buy back stock, I could think I think we're very comfortable at a two times, or even two and a half times leverage. Uh, we can go up to three and a half with our current facility. So I think we're we're actually probably low low from where we can actually be, because right now we're 1.25. I think is our leverage currently. Um, you mentioned acquisitions. Um, what are key aspects you're looking at or looking for? So I think, you know, the, the acquisitions, that w the, the ones we already made and the ones that we're, we would be looking at are really uh, will be strategic. So it'll, it'll be similar to what we did now, maybe bigger scale, but uh, someone that brings in and enhances or expands any current capabilities we have. If it's a new therapy we want to enter someday that, that we want to kind of gain the experience and the expertise faster, uh, we might make an acquisition. Uh, we're not really that interested in buying somebody just for the revenue. Um, you know, that would that would have been an easy thing to do is go buy someone to boost up our, our top line numbers. Uh, but it's going to be more strategic in nature. And, and it could be as small as what we've already done, which are pretty small. 
Uh, they can get bigger to Barry's point. You know, we have plenty of access to the capital to do it. Um, it just depends on when the opportunity arises, if we get it at the right value and the right price. Uh, and it makes sense from us from a strategic standpoint. And, and we also don't want to do something that would distract us from our core business. Right. So we don't want to do something that's outside of what our real competencies are, what our what our long term strategy is. So if you see something, it might be to supplement the biomed services team again, like we've already done. It might be to either enter or bolster an existing therapy or a new therapy. Uh, those are the types of things you could probably look for. Final one for me, guys, is um, it sounds like you're progressing in biomedical fairly quickly. And am I understanding uh, what you said on the call correctly, that you're going to have some sort of uh, update on that before the next conference call, most likely in the form of a PR or something? Yeah, so we think we have a, a bunch of uh, press releases coming out. Some of them are going to be pretty sizable. Uh, some of them will be more to kind of show people what the what the methodology and strategy is moving forward. Uh, but but there are a lot of things that are coming down the pike. And that's, you know, we, we got asked a lot over the last week, you know, what makes you think that the second half of the year is going to be better than the first half from a top line standpoint? And it's it's not us crossing our fingers and hoping the revenue shows up. It's not what it is at all. Right. We can actually see a path to the numbers, right? We, we really ripped through the numbers and made sure that what we see is what we gave everybody. Um, so there are some things where we're kind of dotting I's and crossing T's on agreements. We're working through agreements. Uh, you know, there's there's an agreement out there that we're or a press release out there. We're just waiting for approval to to put the press release out. So there's there's various things. And again, they're not all massive, but all of them will kind of help everybody understand the story and kind of where we're going as an organization. And you'll see a few of those, you know, by the end of this year for sure. Well, that kind of made me think of another one. Sorry, I said that was the last one. But when <laughs> in your meeting with investors um, so far, uh, and especially I would say perhaps more on the institutional side, do you think that they're that they're understanding it? I mean, I did see some of the reports. I think like, you know, uh, Brooks O'Neill, I think he gets what you're doing, for example. But are you seeing that, you know, fairly broadly that after, especially after that, you know, first day sell off, are people understanding what's going on? Because it just it seems to me pretty easy to understand, but it is. I think it's it's becoming that way as we talk to more and more people, right? So it, it's hard to look at the the earnings release and understand really what's going on, right? Until you have a conversation right. about it. Um, I think once we have that conversation, I think people understand. Okay, now we understand the the drop in the top line is explainable with COVID. The drop in the bottom line is a conscious decision that we'll do over and over again if we can and have those opportunities. Um, so once you talk through it, I think people get it. Uh, you know, what happened in the first day or so, you know, I, I, I can't necessarily explain. But uh, as people really start to to peel back the onion and understand what's going on, then, yeah, it's it's I, I think a lot of people like yourself, they look at it as an opportunity to get in, you know, 20 percent cheaper than they could have a, a week ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I just view it as a good opportunity to buy. Um, like I, I'm like you, you know, I'm not looking to uh, for the quarter to quarter um, you know, progress or, or continued, you know, if you take a step back to take 10 steps forward, like you said, you got to make that call 10 out of 10 times. So that's right. Yep. We got, uh, Remy raising his hand. Um, Josh, can you, is Josh on here still? Can you let him, uh, ask a question? I have one last question until he gets the microphone. Um, when, when I'm looking at all the opportunities you have and I'm looking at three, four, five years out. I mean, realistically, you're probably a billion dollar company by then. Um, do you have 
at this point, do you feel you have all the firepower on the management level to handle that expansion well? Yes. Um, and, I, and I wouldn't have answered that way three years ago. I think anyone that's been around long enough knows, Barry being the newest member of the team, but uh, we have a phenomenal mix of people that have been around for a long time. So I've been here for, it's almost 18 years now. Um, we have a, a supplemented with expertise that we just never had before. And that, that was the kind of very last slide in the presentation. Uh, and, and it goes way beyond the five of us. And I think that that's probably the biggest difference over the last few years. It's not just the top uh, group that's, that's, I'll put the five of us up against anybody. Um, but now the tiers below us are starting to build and build and build with talent and skill sets. And just like the pain reps coming from a competitor and seeing what Infusystem is doing, uh, we're pulling people from, you know, top three healthcare companies in, in the world that are that are coming to Infusystem. So uh, we're in a perfect spot right now that we could go and, and probably probably become a billion dollar company with what we have today. But that doesn't mean we're going to stop bringing in expert after expert and, and top tier talent. Uh, I believe if there's an opportunity to hire the best that's out there, you go hire them and, and they're, they're going to help the organization. Uh, we've seen that uh, on my team and, and levels all the way throughout the organization, uh, top to bottom. Fantastic. And I agree with Aaron. I mean, I liked a lot what I heard on the conference call and I liked even more the buying opportunities. So I think that's, that's fantastic. Hey, go ahead, Remy. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to ask questions. So I, uh, listen, I, I was here when the company uh, was paying 18% on its debt and was upside down. And, and I'm delighted to see the company able to make these decisions to, to invest like they are. So a couple of specific questions. So the two things that uh, are two statements that aren't reconciling for me, and maybe I'm just hearing them incorrectly. Uh, one is uh, so regarding buybacks, right? So um, I sort of took Barry's commentary that right now the um, priority is investing in the growth initiatives of the business, uh, but I'm also hearing on the other side, um, you know, the buyback's a tool uh, when opportunity presents itself. If we have the liquidity, we'll do it. And and a third, what I'm inferring is like, well, I just saw a pretty big drop. We're talking about the company being able to be a billion dollar company four or five years out. We have more liquidity than debt. So to be clear, like either if you can answer it explicitly, are you guys in the market executing on your buyback or maybe another more nuanced way to, to ask the question is, is, is the drop that we saw in the last week, not opportunistic enough for you to deploy the buyback? So that's my first question. I'll pause there for you guys to answer that. Yeah, good. I think one of the missing links is is that, that you have to put, you know, across all the, or connect all the dots, as Rich talked about, upcoming announcements. So you can't buy back shares when you have those kinds of things that are kind of pending. So we have to be careful. Um, I think that um, certainly this looks like the type of opportunity we'd be looking for. Still, we're not going to spend $20 million in, in a couple months. We can't because we, there's rules about how much you can buy back. And that's a three-year plan, right? So this year, even we should have a little extra cash left over, even having, having done a couple acquisitions. So those are, those are the things you got to kind of tie together, I think, to, to, to know what we're doing. And we probably wouldn't tell people until we publish our quarter what we're doing because 
we, we want to get the lowest price possible. So we'll, we'll be a little cagey on that from time to time. Uh, understood. And I don't think the expectation here is that anybody that, you know, you go through 20 million because uh, you have to balance everything. But to, to be explicit, so you guys don't have a 10B5 in place um, when you put that stock buyback plan in place or... I mean, yeah. that's what I'm inferring if, if you guys are in a blackout right now. We still wouldn't, we, it's difficult for us to share all the, you know, the, the tactics and how we're going to execute that program just because just we want to buy stock the cheapest amount possible. So. Okay, well, I'll, I'll move on. We, we, don't know, we don't know what that is. We, we will use 10B5s when it's appropriate and you know, we'll buy back shares when we're allowed. So. Okay, perfect. perfect. Let's move on to uh, just a more technical question. So lymphedema, which, which you've talked about as being a, I know I know very little about it, uh, but you know, very big market. Um, part of what I have the common thread in a lot of the therapies and and sort of the nut you guys have cracked is being able to put out a device, the logistical challenge of putting out a device, retrieving a device, cleaning, servicing it, and just repeating that cycle and then obviously overlaying the billing on it. Now, Maybe I'm misunderstanding lymphedema, but it sounds like you sell a device once, that person retains that device for as long as they need it, which is often indefinitely. And so that cycle doesn't repeat itself. And so I guess, one, am I correct in that in that presumption? And if I am, why, I guess, would you guys be able to allow to earn an a abnormal margin on that activity? Yeah. So, Remy, that's a great question. So, it's the way it's reimbursed is it's reimbursed once. So, an oncology pump is reimbursed every 30 days as off as long as you're on the pump, right? That's kind of our historic business. Lymphedema is it is it is different. We get reimbursed once for the device. Basically, when the patient starts on the vi the device, the payer basically says we're buying this device up front until it doesn't work anymore, and it's usually like a five year fr time frame before they'll cover another one. Uh, the reimbursement, although it's only a one-time reimbursement, you might as well spread it out over the lifetime of the device. So like an infusion pump we buy for, you know, call it $1,300, $1,400 on average. We get $200 a month effectively for the next seven years when we depreciate it. A lymphedema device, we could buy it for seven, eight, nine hundred and get reimbursed five, six, or 7000 for it. So the margins are still pretty sizable. There are still disposables. There's garments that go with it. So it's not tubing and batteries like on the infusion pump side. But there are some disposables that we are allowed to bill certain times and certain months. Um, so there is a little bit of ongoing revenue. The, the biggest difference is so we still have to support the patient from a clinical standpoint. Uh, our revenue cycle team, team only has to bill one time for the device, which is nice. Right. So it's a lot less less of a heavy lift for them. And you're right. The biomed team, for the most part touches the pump when we receive it to check it and make sure it's safe for the patient to go out the door and then they're done. Uh, so the margins actually hold pretty well because there's a le lot less back-end uh, work to be done on lymphedema than there is in oncology. And, and, and maybe this is a nuance to just healthcare that I don't understand, but why would sort of the market leader allow, you know, I mean, if you're saying you're buying a device for 800 and selling it for five or 6,000, you know, theoretically, the most they can make on it is 800 bucks. Like, why are they letting you guys capture that? If Why can't you just buy, quote unquote, direct, you know, from the OEM? Is there a regulatory reason or, or that's no. just, you know, no, I think it's packaging the service? Yeah, so so we partner with BioCompression. 
Uh, they're a great private company out of New Jersey, kind of born and raised in the United States. That they've been phenomenal to deal with. Uh, it, it's just like when we deal with, you know, an infusion pump manufacturer. They're manufacturers, and that's what they do. Uh, they don't have that in, that back-end infrastructure. They have no RCM people. They don't have anyone in clinical, uh, no true biomed repair technicians. Uh, so for them, they're happy to kind of send it out the door for whatever they sell it to Infusystem for. We make our money for all the work we do. They make their money for manufacturing the device. Uh, and that's been a model in healthcare for years, right? Look at the pump business. We carry every pump on the market. And in oncology, there isn't one pump manufacturer out of the, I don't know, seven or eight different manufacturers in that world that has a model anything like what we do. They actually don't even go into oncology. They turf the entire market to us. So it, 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 totally, totally understand, but I guess the difference is there's this back and forth of the equipment, which they sure. don't seem to be able to conquer, with, where if it's just buy and the person receives it, that seems relatively easy to do, but you know maybe I'm missing something. And, um, and yeah. I, I totally understand, like, hey, that's just the way it works, and, and yeah, that's and it, fine. But. And I think the piece that, that might finish the puzzle for you is the revenue cycle side. So mm -hmm. biocompression or anybody else could say, hey, let's go do this ourselves, even if they had the ability to, and they don't have to see the device every two weeks like they do in oncology. Mm -hmm. But if they don't have a contract with the payer, they're not going to get paid that $5,000. Understood. That's a much more understandable yeah. uh, reason for me. Great. I th thank you for the, the platform, guys. And I, I will, I will yeah, thank you, Remy. to you guys. Yeah, thanks for me. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Uh, gave us a lot of time very much appreciated and um yeah well, hopefully we'll have you back on here sometime down the road and we can talk about the progress you've made because i imagine it's going to be significant in the next six nine twelve months so thank you very much have a good evening sounds good thanks guys thanks for the opportunity take care thank you very much some or all the speakers may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast the views in this podcast expressed are those of the speakers not breaking investors this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Neither Breckon Investors nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information presented by this podcast and any liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, therefore is expressly disclaimed. No one on this podcast is an investment advisor. No one is providing investment advice. Before investing in any company's stock, you must do your own research. Thank you for listening.